Some of you who teach sermons are like, I want that microphone. Uh, let's talk about Jesus, huh? You ever been around someone who maybe had a reputation or influence? Maybe it was someone who was a celebrity or uh, maybe they were a son or daughter of someone famous and you had no idea. Have you ever been in that situation, anybody? I tend to get myself in trouble. You see, my friend Bobby works for a company that has season tickets to the Lakers. And we're not just talking about season tickets to the Lakers. We're talking about like behind the players bench, nine rows behind the L.A. Lakers. Insane. And so he calls me up. He goes, Corey, do you want to go? And I go, yep. He goes, do you want to know where I'm taking you? I was like, I already know. I'm in. Just any, any night. Doesn't matter what's happening. I will clear the schedule. We're going to a Lakers game. And he goes, all right. It's, uh, it's in November. This day, this night, let's do this thing. And I was like, yeah. So we go. Four of us. We drive from my house, which isn't far from here, to L.A., we walk into the stadium, and just to see that place filled with banners more than the Warriors, sorry, it's true, it's history, and we sit down, and, and in fact, they were playing the Golden State Warriors. Now, I love competition, and I love cheering on my team, and so throughout the whole night, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, Draymond, you suck, right? Not proud of it, not my finest hour, but it happened, so I got to be honest with you. In fact, I was, I was yelling this phrase so loud that the ushers at the Staples Center came to me and said, sir, we need you to tone it down. The feed for ESPN is picking up what you're yelling, and they're not happy. And so sure enough, later that night, someone sent me the link. They're like, we totally heard you yelling at Draymond Green. The point is, I'm making a complete fool of myself. For four periods, I am screaming at the top of my lungs, trying to get the attention of the Lakers bench, I've got my jersey on, I've got my hat on, I'm having the time of my life, and I am loud and I am proud. Well, towards the end of the night, it's the fourth quarter, and LeBron comes off the court and sits in his chair, but before he sits, he's kind of turned, and I swear he's, he's looking right at me, looking right at me. So I kind of made a face, he made a face, all my friends were like, no way, did you just get LeBron James' attention? I was like, hey, it ain't easy being me, sometimes it works, you know what I'm saying? Game ends, woman sitting next to me stands up, walks down, gives LeBron James a hug and a kiss on the cheek. And it was in that moment that I realized that for over an hour, I had been making myself look like an absolute idiot in front of LeBron James's wife, sitting 18 inches away from me through the entirety of the evening. I have not yet been invited back by my friend Bobby to a Lakers game. Like the invitation hasn't come. But maybe you've been in that situation where you knowingly or unknowingly made a fool of yourself. You had no idea who it was that you were talking to. Tonight I want to talk about the truth of Jesus' life on this earth. The fact that he embodied the fullness of God in human skin. We're going to look at his ministry, and my hope is that out of the book of John chapter 4, we can paint a picture of who Jesus was for those 33 some odd years that he walked the face of this planet doing what only God can do. Sound good? John chapter 4, we're going to read a little bit of a longer chunk of scripture tonight, and you're going to see why, because this story is kind of incredible. John chapter 4, 
starting at verse 1. Let me know when you're there. How like a coyote when you're in John 4, yeah? That was not a coyote. That was a coyote that swallowed a turtle whole, I think. Uh, okay. No, just a coyote noise. Um, okay, ready? John 1, three deep breaths and we dive in. This is going to be like 25 verses, okay? I want you to focus, pay attention. Here we go. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So when he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground, Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came and drew water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? For his disciples had already gone to town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. So what you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that the Messiah, who is called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Pray with me. 
God, what a profound, amazing passage that gives us just the tiniest little window, like that on a cruise ship, of who you are, and the kind of work you did when you walked the face of this planet, teaching, healing, loving, and revealing your true identity to people that you came in contact with. Would this peculiar story teach us more about you and the truth of who you were when you walked this earth? We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Long passage, right? But you can see that this woman who Jesus is having a conversation with runs into someone that she does not know. She doesn't realize who it is that she's talking to. Look back with me at verse 5. Verses 5 through 8, what do they tell us? Verses 5 through 8 tell us that Jesus is on a journey. And on this journey, he passes through a territory that would have been unfamiliar to him and his disciples. It would have been a place that typically they would have circumvented, they would have stayed away from. Why? Well, because in the first century, there was some bad blood between these two groups of people, the Jews and the Samaritans. The reason for this lies entirely in the cultural context of its day. You see, the Samaritans had kind of like a half-in, half-out faith. These would have been people who, like, if you're a fan of Harry Potter, would have been known as mudbloods, right? Like, they had a little bit of Jewish heritage, and they also had a little bit of, like, modern Greek heritage, and their identity was found in the marriage of those two ideas. When you mix someone who's half-in, half-out with someone who's a devout Jew, who, who has given their life to following the law, who has given their life to following who God is, to reading and studying and memorizing scripture, you have a little bit of division and you had dissension and at times you had full-blown racism between these two groups of people. So Jesus is on a walk. And as he walks through Samaria, he gets to a place that has deep historical love and heritage for Jewish people. Joseph's well. This was a place that towards the end of Genesis, you could read about this tonight if you were so curious. Now, the time of day that Jesus shows up to this place is noon, 12 in the afternoon. Well, there's something kind of funny going on there. Because if you live in a desert, what would be the worst time to go outside and laboriously draw water from a well? What would be the worst time to do that? Midday, right? And so when we study a little bit beneath the surface of what's happening here, we come to realize that that time slot of going to get water would have been a time of day that would have been given to someone who was lower in the social class system. This would have been given to someone who maybe had a little bit of a rap sheet. Maybe they had been arrested. Maybe they had been accused of crime. Maybe they were just simply a social outcast. Well, this woman, in any case, is at the well around noon when Jesus shows up. Jesus does this funny thing. He gets hungry on his journey. It's important for you to remember that when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about someone who quite literally had the fullness of God dwell within him. In fact, as we've read multiple times throughout this week just so far, and we'll continue to see, Jesus himself claims to be God. Jesus himself was God. And so here we have this woman who is already going to be on edge because she's drawing water from a well at the same time as a Jewish man. She's probably bracing herself for sarcastic comments. 
She's probably bracing herself for unkind things. She's probably bracing herself to come face to face with someone who does not like her and does not like her culture. But that's not what we see happen from Jesus, is it? Look at verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 tell us this. It says that the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, after he asked her for a drink, he said, she, he said to, <laughs> she said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus reveals a little bit of his nature, a little bit of his character to this woman who is already uneasy being at this time, at this place, with this specific person. Well, what does this tell us about the character of Jesus when he walked on this earth and did ministry among humans just like you and I? This tells us that Jesus sees people for who they are. Jesus sees this woman. In fact, we'll see later on that supernaturally, Jesus has a little bit of her history in mind as he's conversing with her. Jesus has a little bit of understanding about who this person is, why she's here, what her past is. Jesus sees her and extends to her an opportunity to commune with him, to offer him a drink. And this woman who's already feeling a little bit, uh, what would be the word? She's already, uh, the way her tone comes across is a little bit passive-aggressive. Have you ever had someone who's passive-aggressive? Maybe you yourself, a room this size, I'm sure some of you are, where maybe you're sitting down watching TV and the Apple TV remote is nowhere to be found and you ask your sibling, hey, where's the remote? And they go, I don't know, why don't you find it? And you're like, ooh, okay, saucy. You ever had that? Have you ever had like maybe a waiter or a waitress who you're like, hey, can I get some salt and pepper? And they're like, it's right there. And you're like, oh, thank you. Uh, less tip. Got it. Okay, cool. Perfect. I'm kidding. Always tip your waiters and waitresses. What we see here is that Jesus doesn't care who she is. That is to say, he doesn't care about her identity. He doesn't care that Jews and Samaritans are supposed to be at odds like the Bloods and the Crips. He doesn't care about any of that. No. In fact, what Jesus cares is to sit down and direct his focus, his gaze, and his attention to her. Why? We see this happen all throughout the book of John. We see this happen all throughout the Gospels. Jesus sees people. Jesus sees people. In fact, Psalms chapter 33 verse 13 tells us that from heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all of mankind. Have you ever thought about that for a second? Maybe you're someone who is, is, uh, would consider themselves to be introverted. Maybe you like to be the fly on the wall. You're the silent observer at youth group. You know you're that person, if your youth pastor or your counselor are always going like, hey, come participate. Hey, so-and-so, why don't you speak up? Is anyone here, anyone in here know someone like that? Yeah? Some, they're not raising their hands, certainly, right? Like, that person's like, please get your fingers off of me right now. I'm here to watch and listen. Even for people who want to remain unseen and unknown, God sees you. And Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well displays this part of his personality and his character perfectly. Let's read on. Verse 11. She replies to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? This living water, by the way, would be reference to something that would have been a part of Jewish culture. 
I don't want to lose you, but let me just go into this for a second because it's actually kind of beautiful. You see, in Jewish ritual, you would have had to cleanse yourself after coming into contact with someone who was unclean. They, they would have had these pools of water known as a mikvah. My father-in-law is a general contractor. And sometimes people who are of the Jewish tradition or the Jewish cultural identity will contract him to come to their house and to build one of these pools in their backyard because they still today believe that in order to be considered clean enough to have a conversation with God, they have to go into what's called living water. This living water could be rainwater. This living water could be water flowing into a larger body of water. But the point is, this living water has to be active, has to be moving. There's a, there's a Hebrew word for this known as the ma'im shayim. See, you're bilingual again. Look at that. You know, Greek, Hebrew, and English, or whatever else you came here with, right? Jesus, Jesus references living water, and you might be thinking that this is like liquid IV or Gatorade, right? Jesus isn't sitting down and saying, give me some Gatorade. Anyone love Gatorade? What color, not flavor, what color Gatorade? Okay. All right. Cool. Please don't yell at me. Isn't it funny, though? Isn't it funny that with, uh, with Gatorade, we don't say the flavor, we say the color? Like, I love blue Gatorade. It's so good. My kids, one of them loves yellow, one of them loves red. I don't even know what those flavors are. Come back. Come back. Don't lose me here. Don't lose me in your love of sports beverages, Okay. Because what we see happen here in this moment, Jesus isn't saying, I'm dehydrated, I need some electrolytes, give me some living water. No, what he's saying is, if you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked me for water, and I could have cleansed you from all of your impurities. If you knew who it is who asked you for water, you would have flipped that question on me so that I could offer you something that your soul has been longing for. Jesus begins to show us that he doesn't just see this woman, but he knows who she is. This is evidenced in the fact that in verse 17, he tells her, hey, go call your husband and come back. And in verse 17, she replies, I have no husband. What does Jesus go on to say? He goes on to say, you're right, you have no husband because you've had many and the person that you're with now isn't even your husband. Now, it's easy for us to read this and to think this is Jesus calling her out. This is Jesus setting himself up to cancel her. This is Jesus setting him out himself up to shame her. Pause for a second. Let me have your attention, the fullness of your attention, because this is vastly important for us to know about Jesus. The reason Jesus highlights this woman's colorful past is not to rub her face in it. Rather, it's to show her kindness. And maybe some of us here this week are coming, carrying our own version of this story. Things that, that scripture would call sin. That's something we're going to unpack tomorrow. Maybe some of you coming to camp this week have, have found things to cope with the pain, to cope with the disorientation of the last couple years, to cope with a, an unhealthy family life. Maybe you have dysfunction at home. And so you've started to do things to mask that pain, to take that pain away. And for that reason, you feel like you can't even sing songs to God while you're at camp. You can't even listen to the words coming out of my mouth as we read scripture because you're like, God would never even look at me. What I've done is too bad. I'm too far removed. And I don't get that picture of Jesus at all as I read it. Because Jesus' ministry on earth was marked by seeing people 
and knowing them. He recites to her her browser history. And her response, some of you got real nervous. Right? Oh, you mean that thing I cleared before I handed my phone to my counselor? Yeah, that. Jesus knows that about you. He sees who you are, and he knows who you are. Look at this exchange a little closer. This woman says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim to know the place that where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She does what a lot of people do here. He gets it right. Like, you ever seen a good magician? And you have, like, the, the, the queen of hearts, and you hand it back to him, and then he does some with the cards, and he goes, queen of hearts, and you're just like, oh, my gosh. She's kind of thinking Jesus just did that to her. She goes, you're obviously a prophet, but here's the difference between us. You Jews think we have to go to a church. We have to go to a temple in Jerusalem to worship, but my people think we can do it here. And Jesus goes, no, you're completely missing who I am and what I'm here to do. Because I'm not here just as a prophet. I'm not here as a magician. I'm not here as a good person. I'm here to reveal the fullness of who I am to you so that you can begin to worship me in spirit and in truth. I'm the living water is what Jesus says. I'm the one that can make you whole. I'm the one that can make you pure. And I'm the one who can ultimately cleanse you from your impurity and iniquity. Why? Because that's who God is. God is trustworthy. God is loving. And Jesus himself is God. We get to see those attributes that we talked about last night here on display in this passage. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews is going to be more towards the end of your Bible. We're not super sure who wrote Hebrews. Some people think it could have been Paul because the letter reads similar to his other writings, but we don't know. So the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 writes this. He says, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give account. Let me read it one more time a little slower because I want you to hear this. Nothing in all of creation. Who is the creator? We talked about this last night. All right, let's get some confidence on this one. Who's the creator? God. What, is, what does creator mean? It means he made everything. It means he spoke it into existence. God is quite literally the star-breathing, turning clay to human creator of heavens and earth. We talked about that last night, didn't we? And in this moment, in the book of Hebrews, what we're learning is that nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Meaning, the deletion of a browser history, the, the words that are said to cut someone down behind their back, the hatred that remains in our hearts, the lust, the impurity, God sees it all. Think about that for a second. Just pause, right? I want you to close your eyes. Close your eyes. And I want you to examine your own life for a moment. I want you to think about who you are. Think for a second about who you are in light of who God is. 
You see, the scriptures describe God as someone who is holy, holy, holy. The only time in all of the Bible that we hear God described with the same word three times is the word holy. That means he's set apart. In simple terms, he's perfect. With your eyes closed, as you examine yourself, are you perfect? You don't have to answer. You don't have to answer, but I appreciate your honesty and your vulnerability. Yeah. Just think for a second. Am I perfect? No. So come back to me now. So if we can understand that we're not perfect, in this story, I relate more to this woman who's at the well with Jesus. And what Jesus recites to her, her colorful past, what he's affirming is that he's the creator who has a perfect pulse on who and what his creation is. God doesn't just see, but God also knows. The story goes on. Check this out. Turn with me now to verses 25 and 26 in John 4. Last part of Jesus here that we see. Verse 25 and 26. 25 and 26, after their kind of dialogue, after they go back and forth, the woman said, I know that the Messiah, who is called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus reveals who he is to this woman. But he does so after addressing the sin in her life. This perfect, holy, and pleasing God, who the scriptures tell us can't lay eyes on sinfulness, sits next to this woman at a well, knowing who she is and seeing her full well. Being a dad of four kids, I get a lot of sermon illustrations out of them. One year for Christmas, my wife and I, we love to do stockings. Anyone else here like love opening a good stocking? Yeah, perfect, right? So we like to go to like the Target dollar section. We like to go to like Dollar Tree and just fill these stockings as much as they'll go. One year, we put glow sticks in our kids' Um, stockings. We put glow sticks in there. My youngest daughter, Maylee, she's amazing, but she could be sneaky. And so she had this glow stick. She was playing with it all day. She would kind of walk around like this, bump into walls, do whatever. Well, it came time for bedtime. So we're tucking the kids into bed, which bedtime on Christmas night is kind of terrible, if we're honest, right? Because you're going, man, a whole year till I got to do this again? That's terrible. So we're tucking her into bed, and I could see the faint light from her glow stick as she was getting into bed. And I said, hey, Maylee, that glow stick has a, a cord around it. I don't think it would be safe to go to bed wearing that glow stick as you have all day. And she goes, okay. I goes, hey, let's just put it right here on the nightstand. And then in the morning, if there's still some, like, glow in it, we'll put it back on. She goes, okay. So I do the prayers, got a whole ritual. I leave. I come back in 10 minutes later. And guess what that little munchkin has around her neck? The glow stick. And so as a parent, like as a dad, I'm prone to grumpiness. Like I can get grumpy real fast. But in this moment, I didn't want to ruin Jesus' birthday. And so I came in and I said, hey, May, quick question. By chance, do you have that glow stick on? No. No. You told me not to wear it. I don't have it on. I'm like, okay. All right. So like if I were to peel the blanket back, there's no glow stick. No, Dad, there's no glow stick. You said not to do it. Why would I do it? I was like, okay, all right. 
So like underneath your like footy pajamas, you don't have like a seven inch long yellow glowing stick of radiation. No. And in this moment, like grumpy dad came out like, sorry, Jesus, but grumpy dad is here. And I just look at her and I go, Tony Stark, your chest is glowing. Like I can see what you're hiding from me. So I take the glow stick, and this time it went in my room. I didn't fall asleep with it because it had to be a good example, but glow sticks are cool. Here's the point. God knows what you're trying to hide. And as we see at the end of this passage, he doesn't just see you, he doesn't just know you, but he chooses to love you through revealing his nature to you. How easy would it have been for Jesus to call this woman sin out and then to link back up with the disciples eat whatever food they just went and got, and then be on his merry way. No. No, Jesus takes the time to go, hey, that Messiah that you've heard about, that Messiah that you yourself have been waiting for, that Messiah that you have put your hope in, coming to take away the sins of the world, that's me. I'm that person. And in this moment, we see Jesus reveal the fullness of who he is to a broken woman at a well. I believe with all my heart that that's why John 3.16 reads the way it does. For God so loved the world that he what? That he sent. That he sent his only son, Jesus. That whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but will have eternal and everlasting life. Jesus sees you, and he knows you, and he loves you. Jesus' earthly ministry can be described in those three ways, in his interactions with the Pharisees, who had hearts that were full of the knowledge of who God is, yet they remained far from him. He saw that and he knew that. The woman who had been bleeding for years and years and years and years, who just thinks with just enough faith, if I touch the train of his robe as he walks through this crowd, maybe just maybe I could be healed. That's who Jesus is. Jesus who, when his homeboy Peter betrays him three times, still chooses, after his resurrection, to come back to him on a beach, have a fish fry, and go love my people. Why? Because that's who Jesus is. The fullness of Jesus' earthly ministry can be summed up in our understanding that while he walked the earth, he saw people, he knew people, and he still chose to love them through revealing more and more about himself to those that he was interacting with. Why? So that they would put their faith in him, so that they would put their trust in him. And so they, like this woman was doing, could experience the fullness of God in human form. Think about that for a second. Think about that for just a second. That 2,000 years ago, over 330 Old Testament prophecies come true just in the birth and life of Jesus Christ. That book that we talked about this morning, written over a 1,500-year time span, most of it was written before Jesus walked the earth. Most of those years had surpassed by the time Jesus showed up on the scene, and it came true. It was all real. Jesus isn't an allegory. Jesus isn't a myth like Hercules. And Jesus wasn't just a really good person like most religious leaders that people follow today. Jesus didn't only come and reveal the love of the Father, but he very boldly and clearly told people, I am God. 
See, it doesn't matter what you believe to be true about him. What matters is if you believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody gets to the Father through except through him. It doesn't matter if you think he's real. I don't mean to be unkind. I don't mean to ruin anyone's belief, but we're not talking about the tooth fairy here, right? We're not talking about someone that a holiday was made around that shows up one day and has gone the next. We are talking about the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of life as we know it, the author of goodness, who is the embodiment of love. And he's shown us who he is. And he's told us who he is. So what do we do with that knowledge? What do we do with the fact that Jesus sees us, that Jesus knows us, and he still chooses to love us? There's a moment in the book of Matthew 16 that I think sums this passage up perfectly for us. I'll read it for you. You don't have to turn here. But read it later if you're curious. In Matthew 16, Jesus is on yet another one of his journeys, and he comes to this town that was known for kind of like, come and do whatever and believe whatever you want. It's a town called Caesarea Philippi, north of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is here in this town where it's popular to have faith in whatever you want. Very, very much like culture today. Differences of belief, diverse religions are celebrated. That's kind of the MO of this town where Jesus is here on his journey. And he looks at his disciples in a town filled with people who are allowed to believe and do whatever they want. And he says, hey, who do people say that I am? He asked this of his disciples. Who do people say that I am? They replied, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus looks at his own disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? See, it's one thing to know what other people believe. And it's an entirely different concept to know what you yourself believe. And so the question I want to end with tonight, in light of us reading tonight about just one of many accounts in the Gospel of John, where we see Jesus seeing, knowing, and loving people, including their sin, including their shame, and offering them a way to get out from under that baggage and those chains of oppression that have held them away from God. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because my faith in God does nothing for you. Your parents' faith in God does nothing for you. Your counselor's faith in God does nothing for you. Your youth pastor's faith in God does nothing for you. Except, hopefully, set an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus. But whatever example anyone you look up to in the faith sets for you has no saving power for you yourself. You have to put your faith into this Jesus, and you have to believe that he was everything he himself said he was while he walked on the face of this planet. He sees you, he knows you, and he loves you. But who do you say that he is? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the chance to open your word. God, I pray more than anything tonight that you would challenge us with not just the reality that you were who you said you were, that you came to this earth seeing, knowing, and loving people in all of their sin, in all of their shame. You cut through it with a light of goodness 
an eternal hope. Like you asked your disciples on that day in Matthew 16. It doesn't matter what we think of what others say of you. At the end of the day, what matters is what we think of you, of who we think you are. So God, I pray for these students, for these counselors, for these youth pastors, even for the Hume staff. Lord, would you help us tonight to ponder who we think you are. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, let's dance for one last song.